Okay, welcome everyone. This is the Stefan Levera podcast. We're focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, we've got a fantastic interview, very special guest. We have Rodolfo Novak. I'm a big fan, Rodolfo. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, Rodolfo, man, I, I really like what you're doing with, you know, all the different products you're making. And I think really one theme that I think, I think of, when I think of you, I think of like trying to keep Bitcoin cypherpunk and really keep it like to its real roots. So I think today it'll be really great to kind of go into that theme. And I, I think it's the perfect, um, you, something you said recently was this idea of, okay, look, you were saying Bitcoin has practically succeeded at decentralized sound money. And to you, the next challenge is decentralizing Bitcoin's communication networks. So Bitcoin's resiliency is only as strong as its capability to be transmitted and out of band verified. So what were you getting at there, Rodolfo? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't consider myself a cypherpunk. I just do some software punk thingies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I think it's undeniable now that Bitcoin has succeeded, right? I mean, as, as a decentralized money system, you know, like if you last forever, that's a different question, but it has succeeded. I, I mean, it is completely pervasive, right? Like you can find it anywhere in the world. There is, there's very few people left that have not heard of it. They may not understand it, but people don't understand most things in general. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, who understands money really, aside from a bunch of libertarians? Um, so, you know, I, I think the sort of like the next challenge is like, it, it, it's not that, you know, Bitcoin will be made sort of like globally illegal, globally sort of taken out. I think that boat has sailed. I, I mean, you know, uh, even if we lost half of the hash rate, it's not that big of a deal. It's still really secure. So I really think that um, making sure that you can transact uh, from places that you're not allowed to transact is the challenge, right? Because you're always going to have, you know, a country that gets a shitty government. Right. I mean, yeah, all governments are shitty, but some are shittier than others. So, you know, maybe you're in Venezuela, maybe you're in Iran, maybe you are, you know, in New York. Uh, there is all kinds of very sort of dictatorian style systems out there. And they they have a tendency to turn off the Internet. Um, it, it's really their MO. And one of the best ways to go around that is, is to sort of like find, so you, you can, you know, use like mesh nets across the border. You can use like ham radio. You can use uh, Laura networks. You can use SMS. You know, even if you just have your phone close to the border, oftentimes is enough to pick up the cell tower of a different country, right? So being able to, to send those transactions out so they can get broadcasted on the internet, and again, mine is very important. Uh, and, and I think like Blockstream, like maybe it's like, I don't know how long now, but is it almost two years old now, the Blockstream satellite free? Yeah, something like that, at least, at yeah, least a year. It's been around for a while. I mean, it, it feels like it's been there forever. So what's really cool about that is that you can download the block data right, without any like local network. So unlike uh, Francis Coppola, you know, like you don't need <laughs> electricity. <laughs> um, 
you know, she'll get there. I'm certain she'll get there. She she's my favorite troll. Like she can like trigger us Bitcoiners like there is no tomorrow. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, but but the idea is you can download without any public utility, right? Like you can use a a, a battery and you know solar cell and, and satellite dish uh, with zero uh, like RF footprint, so you can't be found. Right, and you can download that the block data and keep track of it, so that you can still do transactions. And then the challenge is getting those transactions out, so you can get them through, you know, these other means like SneakerNet. Right? I mean, you can put in an SD card. That's what Cold Card does, uh, and you can send those through the border. And then somebody can broadcast it for you, and even you know use the Blockstream API to send you a message saying you know something after, which is pretty neat. Uh, I, I think that's the challenge. Is like, how can we make that stuff like dead simple? Um, I, I think that's uh, that's sort of like a, the, one of the next things that should be focused on, aside from like all the privacy stuff that is being worked on. But that's more sort of like on a Bitcoin sort of consensus, sort of core level, right? Like that, like the privacy stuff is, is like inherent to Bitcoin as opposed to the communication, which is just figuring out how to, to make Bitcoin go around. Right. Yeah. Because one part of it is the transaction graph. And then the other part is the communication. That's the part you're talking about here. So maybe let's try and break down some of the methods a little bit, right? So you've got a, a, the example you raised around um, Blockstream satellite. And, you know, Dr. Back himself said, Look, even with Blockstream satellite, you should not necessarily trust the satellite data. You should verify the block header out of band yeah. using SMS. So here's the really cool thing about uh, compressed blocks, right? So compressed blocks is similar to what the fiber network uses for miners, right? You can use the block headers. Listen, it is not perfect, right? Nothing is ever, it, there's always going to be compromise if you are in a compromising situation. <laughs> so um you but you can get that very low bandwidth data right the block headers in and check them just to keep a block stream honest but another cool thing too is in, the reason why i'm not too concerned about the block stream satellite being evil is that it can also check the mining difficulty yeah so if the difficulty is high i mean the chances that you know they can mess with that are pretty low too so it's not that big of a deal Mm, right, right. And look, so I mean, that's one method, right? Yeah. You've got multiple different methods. Uh, it You could potentially send a Bitcoin transaction using these SMS gateways. That's another yeah. example of communications being done in an atypical fashion. Totally. You know, people forget that originally cell phone networks were unencrypted and they were also sort of like, uh, you know, pretty uh, mesh netty. Um, you know, the, the old FDMA systems before the GSM stuff, you know, actually you could hack uh, cell phones and listen to other people's conversations just by jumping on their channels. <laughs> mm. This was the thing that people used to do in the 90s, right? Like, um, so uh, you can set up, uh, you know, like uh, cell tower repeaters from a country that is friendlier, right? Like closer to the border and get people, you can point antennas. There's all kinds of stuff you can do to get information in and out with just cell phones, not even getting complicated, right? Um, and then you can use, you know, uh, 
close devices like uh, Goltena to sort of do uh, like mesh nets, or you, you can use the the, the LoRa WAN um, to do more open mesh nets on LoRa. Uh, there is a cool project called Snap on Air. Uh, it's like the guy. I, I don't know like them personally or too much about their story. Just their sort of gist. Seems to be like a medical doctor with an electronics degree uh, who uh, created this. Uh, it's like a mesh net pager system. <laughs> so you can send information, right? We, without any centralized point of failure and or point of control. And it's really not that hard with LoRa. Like you can achieve a good three to five kilometers on LoRa um, in an open setting. And if it's a more city-like, you can have better antennas and sort of still do quite a bit of distance. And even on those, you know, even if you can just want to get one kilometer, right? Like it's normally enough to jump a border. Uh, yeah. So you know, you can do WiMAX. You can do like you know, more high power Wi-Fi. Um, one of my favorites is sneaker net. You know, it's like one of the oldest and greatest. It's been being used since the you know medieval times. <laughs> you know, you just have a tiny little piece of device of the information and you get it from point A from point B. Um, it's kind of how that guy snuck out the the pictures of North Korea in uh in his camera right like he hid in the in the partition of his drive or something and got a bunch of pictures out um and then you can really go uh full uh uh, uh full prepper and go like ham radio <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's let's go into this i think you, you you know you've recently done some work on this let's let's hear it so you know for for people who are into amateur radio like it's not that big of a deal. They they understand like the mechanics of this. It just seems like magic, mostly for people who don't understand how radio works, uh, especially when you're doing uh, uh, big waves, right? So uh, when you're doing like 40 meters and 20 meters, like that's like very low megahertz, like seven megahertz, right? Uh, what's really cool about these bands is that they really don't require a lot of power. So you can use like five, 10 watts. Like it really is very little. Uh, and and you can like get the information across continents, um, which is pretty fantastic. Now the bandwidth is the hard part, right? Like in these bands, you get almost no bandwidth. So uh, we're talking about like a hundred bits a second. So, right. you know, it takes like 10 minutes, 15 minutes to send a uh, hundred uh, kilobytes. Um, so a Bitcoin transaction will take 15 minutes to, to go, but but you're using essentially no power and you're getting that transaction across the globe, right? Um, that's a big deal. Um, and that's sort of what we did between me and Elaine and uh, Samuel as well. Uh, we sent, uh, one of the examples was sending a brain wallet and uh, so, like, I made a bring all that was very short. Of course, it's clear text. We know nobody in those bands were watching for it. So, you know, risk it. And then, but we did send the salt for the bring wall in a different band. So then you don't, you know, you can't really have the whole information in one simple uh, uh, monitoring session. 
Right. Um, so let me just break that down right. a little bit. So in this example, essentially, you had like a 12-word seed or a 24-word seed, in, and you sent that through one kind of radio f- frequency, and then you sent, like, you, how did it you? Was a, it was a 75-bits seed. So we're talking about, like, it was just two words together. Oh, wow. Okay, so it's even less than that. Okay. And then can you just break that down for us? Like, how, how did you do that? So, um, you know, most of the, like, the, the modern nerds, the younger nerds, right? Like, we do mostly, like, we, we don't actually use the, the handy, like, we don't talk on, on amateur radio. We, we just do computer to computer. So we essentially use our radios as a modem, like kind of like, uh. you know, dial-up used to be way back in the day. But imagine your computer telling a radio with like a 15-foot antenna that I have on top of my house, uh, sort of like, you know, sending the signal yeah. across the planet. <laughs> wow. And so like then what's the like what's the range on this kind of thing how much preparation does it take well i mean i have my rig set up on my desk so i mean i'm ready to go anytime <laughs> <laughs> okay I mean, you know i could uh, hang on let me send a signal here let's see if we can reach uk um we'll hear uh ooh, if they get it um so oh sorry i think we might have lost the range is Hello. Sorry, we lost you. I think you're back now. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, yeah I think uh, I, <laughs> I think my uh, my transmission interfered with the Wi-Fi. All <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so, anyways, oh, there you go. Uh, that guy. Oh no, that guy is in California. Um, so the the range is quite incredible, right? Because this these waves are very very big, so they don't get absorbed by stuff, right? Like. Uh, by walls or or trees, they bounce and and what they do is they they're so big that when they reach the ionosphere, right, uh, way above the clouds, um, they hit it and, and they bounce back down, and they keep on like skipping up and down, up and down across like the planet. Wow. Until they sort of, yeah, until they either dissipate or or you know, get out of phase or whatever, but uh, they can go quite far. Um, and then you know, some people do what's called moon bounces. You use a smaller wave that goes through the ionosphere, but it hits the moon, and then it kind of bounces back into the earth. Wow. Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of cool stuff you can do with these things, and uh, but yeah. The, the the challenge really is bandwidth on this stuff, right? Like this is th- these waves are very big, so it's very hard for you to like you know jiggle them enough to to get data through. Yeah, right, right. And then I guess here's the other thing: like, what sort of technical skills do you require to do this kind of thing? Um, I mean, you know, there you can debate the licensing or non-licensing in the libertarian circles. <laughs> But, uh, I mean, I'm a licensed ham, right? Um, <clears throat> what's cool about the... I mean, y- you require licenses in most countries to transmit in these bands. That's a-, a thing, right? And you can get in trouble for not. Uh, but um, I highly recommend doing the test anyways because the knowledge you need to do the test is going to be the knowledge you need to know how to do this stuff. 
uh, you need to learn the physics of the stuff. Like you need to learn some electrical and electronics a little bit. Essentially, you need to understand how like radio waves work and how, you know, uh, matching, you know, impedance on antennas. And there is a bit of like, this is not like a hobby for everybody. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's really not that hard. Um, yeah. And okay. on the receiving side, you can have cheap SDRs, which is really cool. So you can have a cheap, very low skill uh, computer driven radio that just listens. Uh, and then you can actually decode the, the transactions or information. Right. So that's the SDR, the software defined radio, right? And that's like, that's one of the approaches that I believe Blockstream used to make the satellite, uh, the actual equipment a bit cheaper, but then you need like a more uh, kind of powerful laptop to actually decode that message. Is that right? Yeah. So what happens, so essentially like everything that works on radio, like your phone, everything has, you know, uh, essentially a, a receiver right, a radio receiver. Um, the thing is, uh, what you try to do in better better radios or more expensive radios is you have a DSP or an FPGA, right? It's like a, like a hardware-specific chip, right, that, that understands what you're trying to, to listen to and converts that to the bits of information you want, right? When you have a more general-purpose cheap thing, it knows how to listen for everything, but it doesn't really know how to decode anything. Right. So you have to use the computer, which is not specialized, to, to demodulate, decode that information in, into the bits of data you want. Fantastic. Okay. And then I think, so some of this stuff, like obviously you need to be a bit of a hobbyist. You need to be into it to kind of understand it. I suppose the next level then is how can these things become kind of easier or accessible to the masses? Do you have any ideas around that? Yeah. So... I was actually talking to Adam. Uh, I've been trying to convince him to get a um, a dish box, right? Like, you know how you have a dish to watch TV from satellites? You, you know, if they can find the right one and write the software for it, you can actually have a turnkey satellite receiver, right? On your living room that, like, is a full node. Yeah. Not, yeah. you know, out there. It's just, you know... The Bitcoin market, you know, for trading is massive, right? But the Bitcoin market for like, you know, the people who are on the on the ground floor, you know, doing the stuff, right? Really caring about nodes, and, and it's still it's big, but it's too small still for you to build some of these consumer solutions. But they're totally possible, and a lot of the stuff is is, is not like rocket science. It's just we just need the scale. Right. So it's in your view, then it's kind of a question of until this market gets big enough that there are enough consumers out there who would be willing to buy kind of some of this, you know, like a dish and maybe a, a pre-configured laptop in the same way that, you know, we have things like the Casa and the Noddle and so on. Maybe they can have like pre-configured items or pre-configured, you know, plug and play, off you go, plug it in and it'll do it. Exactly. Or, you know, like, for example, the Casa Node is... It's only possible to be done at a price point because Raspberry Pis are cheap, right? It's just Raspberry Pis are too like slightly underpowered for what you want in terms of like satellite decoding, yeah, right? 
So, you know, eventually either the, the markets, the, the economies of scale of general purpose hardware gets there and then you can do it or your market gets big enough and then you can do it. It's sort of like, it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So I guess if it's going to happen, do you have a, an idea on timing? Like, would you say kind of five years until these sorts of products become available for the masses or what do you think? Uh, two weeks. <laughs> the classic, the classic, the BF. I didn't know you, you were part of BFL. Rodolfo, wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, can't, you can't time technology. It's, you know, I mean, even us with our products, right? I mean, you get all the stuff done. You have the factory working on it. You know, your product is done, right? And then, no, you know, like the, some part, like say like the ultrasonic welding, you know, like uh, the 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 mold for the ultrasonic welding breaks, right? Yeah. And then you happen to be, you know, uh, the Chinese holiday. And then, boom, you're late four months. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, the practice, you know, yeah. With hardware, you just never know. Um, we've, we, we know that. <laughs> mm, yeah. Personally, I've been, uh, I've been the victim of the Chinese holiday. <laughs> All right. And and I suppose, okay, on this kind of radio wave transmission, what about doing doing it under adverse weather conditions? Does that impact it or no? No. Well, yes and no. So the the feed, uh, I think, is like 10 gigahertz uh, for the cool band that uh, Blockstream uses. Um, it, you know, like very, very uh, like bad weather will definitely interfere. Uh, they are working on having a possible second feed that's delayed so you can catch up after. Right. It solves a lot of that problem. Um, so, so, yeah, that is a problem. Uh, for ham radio, weather is not a problem. Sun weather is a problem for ham radio. So, like, like low megahertz, it, it's, like, more, like, electromagnetic issues from the earth and the sun. Uh, now, when you get into higher bands, right, so, like, gigahertz, what, like molecules in the air start to sort of cause interference wow okay yeah it's i mean because for me this is like totally new i don't really understand some of this stuff very well but um it is kind of it is interesting as well just to see what the possibilities of it are um let's talk then i think you were touching there a little bit around kind of some of the difficulties of kind of making some of this hardware and making some of these products. Let's talk a little bit about CoinKite and, you know, what you've kind of faced when you were making some of the different, you know, the Open Dime and then the uh, Cold Card. Do you want to tell us a little bit of insight there? Yeah. I mean, we, we started way back, right? We used to have the CoinKite payment terminals and, and Bitcoin debit cards yeah. that we yeah. made. That was like, wait, like 2013, I think. Um, it was a little bit of uh, a few years ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. <laughs> um, it was a fun project. Um, but um, so for, for a long time, I've been wanting to make a, a, a paper wallet, right? That was sort of like dignified of the, of the cryptography, right? And the problem with paper is that uh, one is you have to trust the device that generates the wallet, right? So your computer is already a no-go. Uh, even if your computer is all clean and safe, it's still a very sort of like, a, it's a complex device, right? Complex devices are inherently unsecure. 
because there's more stuff going on there. You just, you know, it, it's a loss. It's hopeless. Um, so, uh, and then you have to print the paper wallet. Now, the printer was not designed to do that safely. Yeah. It, 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 it's tricky, right? Um, so we were looking into, like, how can we generate, you know, a private key? And, uh, and sorry, and then there is the issue that if me, the the creator of the paper wallet, give you a paper wallet, you can't trust it because I know the private key. I can redeem the funds after you leave my office, right? Uh, that sort of misses the whole point. So, but but that becomes a conundrum, right? Like somebody has to create the private key. It has to be safe, uh, sort of like a like a sound. Uh, uncheated private key so we we tried experimenting you know maybe was going to be a provably uh verifiable laser etching machine making it on like uh like aluminum plates that would get folded and sort of closed down but that just became too convoluted and then we were trying to think like okay what if we used a what if we created a electronic device with like a general purpose chip that you had to like physically alter it uh so that you know if i created the the private key and only the device knew the private key i didn't know you don't know that i can give it to you right it's like a bearer bond so we experimented for a few different things and we came up with open dime where the the private key is inside the chip Right, and it generates with your entropy. So CoinKite has no way of ever figuring out uh, how, like, which key is that. Even if we had a rainbow table or anything like that, we just can't. We probably can show it to you that we used your nonce, right? We used your your entropy. Um, so um, essentially, so you get this little device, stick it in the computer. Uh, he asks you for some entropy. You give it to it. Um, and then it, it gives you a Bitcoin address to deposit. That's it. Uh, you deposit money in it. You as the, the sender or the, the, the originator don't know the private key at all. So there is no backup. Uh, so, you know, be mindful of that in the amount you do. Uh, I've heard some interesting stories. Um, Anyway, so be mindful of the amounts and mindful of the device, right? It's a bare bond. Whoever has it has the money. So, uh, so yeah, so once you give it to the next person, they can uh, either, they can check, uh, they can cryptographically verify the device. Um, Samurai Wallet, for example, does that on a phone. And then you can give it to the next person, the next person, and have zero trade. Oh, sorry. I think we lost you there for a second. He was just saying you can give it to the next person. Yes. So essentially, um, when I give it to you, there is no Bitcoin transaction between us on the blockchain, right? There's only a verified transaction inside the device. So there's no trace between us. Now, if you give it to somebody else, there's no trace between the two of you and so on, right? So you can keep on passing this thing on hundreds of people, zero trace between each other. Now, 
the person that wants to to redeem that Bitcoin and sell it for US dollars on an exchange, for example, uh, they just uh, poke it through, uh, literally physically poke it, uh, like there is a like a place for you to put a push pin, and it's gonna break off apart. Uh, so it's like physically visible. And once you stick it in a computer, we change an address in the memory of the chip, so you can't you can't just solder back the part or anything like that. It's fairly safe, and uh, that's it. We display the private key. Yeah, fascinating. And so it's kind of like because it never touches, right? It each time it gets handed over, it's not actually touching the blockchain, right? It's literally just you know handed over. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the way I like to say it, it's like the real Bitcoin Cash. <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah. Big Cash is actually Bitcoin Cash. <laughs> That's like, right. You know, like you put money in it and you give it to somebody and they have it. Like, yeah, it, it's um, I don't know if you ever bought something in person with Bitcoin. You know, you understand the pain of waiting. Uh, like you know, if you buy a computer off of somebody or something that's like a bit more money. Uh, you know, with this, like, there is no wait. You just take the money and go. Yeah, that's right. And uh, look, we've just got to confirm for the listeners, there was some chatter on uh, Marty Bent and Matt O'Dell's podcast about the shape of the open dime. Um, <laughs> whether, you know, you updated the design of the open dime such that it could be, how shall yeah, we so call it? I did it in honor of Jensef. So I think it was Jensef who first came up with the idea of the prison wallet. <laughs> and this was years ago. Uh, Open Time, I think, is like now four years old. And, and it was squared, right? Uh, like very hard edges on it. So, uh, I mean, you know, we, of course, wanted to make the product more pleasing to the eye. We have a certain uh, aesthetics to our products. Um, you know, very, um, you know, bare PCB, and we, we love that. But uh, we figured, you know, why not incorporate his desire uh, of uh, smoothness? <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, look, I mean, so look, if you ever, and I think coming back to uh, the Bitcoiners kind of favorite no coiner, Francis Coppola, right? This open dime is a great example of enabling an, a 100% offline transaction that required no power. No, you don't. Because, see, what she, what, I think she said, she didn't say, did she say electricity? She did say electricity, but electric or utilities. Yeah, it could be. I can't remember the specific but, but word. There's a difference, right? And, and the reality is that you know there is plenty of places where you can get decentralized power even in a in a, uh, a developed country, right? I mean, you go to cottage country, you know, everybody has a generator or you know some solar cells because it's just the reality of you know living in cottage country. But that's still Canada, and you can still get uh, five bars or four G in the places you may not certainly get electricity. So, you know, this is just somebody, you know, it's like old man screaming at the paper, you know, like it's just, I, I mean, you know, I get the desire of trolling Bitcoiners, but, you know, it's very intellectually dishonest to say in 2019 that you can't get electricity somewhere, 
you, you know, I mean, you, you, the, even just like batteries, I mean, he can take power anywhere. You, you can take an iridium cell phone, like to the end of Earth, and and have a conversation with somebody while you're going to the end of Earth. <laughs> it's, mm, yeah, it's really not that big of a deal. Yeah, and I think um, a lot of people were sharing back Grubel's article. So I think you've probably seen Grubel's article where he essentially talks about like kind of the maximum approach where he's basically using Blockstream satellite, mesh networking, fully offline, no kind of power or internet himself, but using things like uh, I think it was uh, uh, battery power and then mesh networking to send the transaction. My radios are running off of battery and I saw cell to keep them up to keep the charge just for the fun of it i mean i still have like an extra line to charge the batteries uh just because i had a ton of snow on top of the the solar cells but i mean i can run them for like a month on my uh on my uh lifepo uh uh like big power cell like it's not that big of a deal i mean maybe it's just you know in her life you know, after understanding how to use the microwave and, you know, the fridge, you know, she'll figure out batteries. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. What about um, mesh networking then? So have you um, played around much with things like GoTenor transactions or TX10 or anything like that? So I, I did play with GoTenors. Um, they're interesting. I, I personally don't have a lot of, like, it's like, I want to like them, but like, you know, I get no satisfaction. So, you know, I, I've even like, I've even, um, you know, broke this one apart and installed an SMA connector so I can use my roof antennas with it. And, you know, I, I just can't get anybody in a third largest city in North America to connect with me. Um, so, and another problem too is that you know they're closed source, they're closed network. Um, there is some people uh, sort of like hacking them and creating solutions. There, that's pretty cool. I, you know, I don't want to diminish that product. It's a cool product and, and it serves a purpose. I just don't think that that's the future. I think something more like a, a Snap on Air and the people making Laura Wan. Uh, but not the LoRaWAN that some people claim is hub and spoke, the LoRaWAN that does P2P relays as well. Uh, that stuff is way more interesting um, because it's fully open, right? And that means, you know, uh, this like this radios I'm playing with, like, you know, like this ESP32 uh, like devices, um, they can they can talk to other devices you know provided that we're all speaking the same the same protocol and, and then you can just keep on hopping right uh and you can create your own solutions for it um I, I find that pretty interesting especially because you know with these devices i can have a, a, a micro sd slot so that i can uh, broadcast a cold card transaction right yeah you know that that to me is killer, right? I mean, you know, I, I use my cold card to, to 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 sign a transaction, save it to the micro SD card, stick it on the radio, and then poof, it goes. 
Yeah, right. And I think that's part of the power, I guess, of keeping things in kind of this sort of standardized, interoperable kind of way, as opposed to everyone coming up with their own standard, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about how, how, like, what approaches are being made there to kind to kind of make a protocol that works across um, different devices? Um, protocols are a funny thing. XKCD has a great uh, protocol uh, cartoon. Yes. You know, there's 10 protocols that don't do what I want. I'm going to create the 15th or something like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, there, there is there's a few. Um, Golden has their own uh, preparatory sort of thing. Uh, apparently, they do uh, clear text for the, the public chat. I, I don't know exactly how their system works, so I'm not going to go there. But... Um, LoRaWAN is neat. Uh, it's the the Things network. It was actually designed for sensors to talk to each other. Um, it is encryption by default, uh, which is really neat. Uh, you can't encrypt on ham radio. Like you can't send covert communication. is against the rules. Not to say that people don't. Um, but uh, so yeah. So so LoRaWAN, you know. Um, you you can use this. This is a cheap M5 stack uh, device from China now. That's sort of a new cool little hacking thing for the ESP32 module, and uh, it, it's just a cheap hacking module with like a general purpose chip that does a lot, and it has a lot of the radios for you. And so you, you can mess around a lot with something that doesn't require a lot of upfront investment. Um, and, uh, and there is a lot of like, there's hats for Raspberry Pis. There is, you know, like there's essentially modules that you can put for LoRaWAN, right? In most hacking sort of devices, right? So it's not as professional and robust yet as something like Laura, sorry, as something like uh, Goltena. Uh, it seems like their devices have quite a bit of work in them already. They've been fairly optimized. Uh, but it's open, and, and you'll get there. Uh, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. Yeah, okay. And I think another concept that might be interesting for you to touch on, just you know, to help us understand, uh, just around open hardware, open source hardware, because I know that's a big factor for you as well. Uh, and, and like, why is that important? Um, so, you know, a bit of background, I guess. So when we started CoinKite way, way back, right? CoinKite was centralized wallet. We did multi-sig so people didn't have to trust us and all that good stuff, right? But it was closed source system, right? Because it was centralized. Now, when we closed it, you know, the challenge was, okay, where do I store my coins? <laughs> and, 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 oh, and then I ordered the available sort of like wallets. You know, I had a few already and sort of ordered the newest ones. And, you know, it, it's just... You know, you ask, uh, you know, each hardware company what they think, and they're all going to come up with different answers, right? So, like, in my personal view preference, you know, I needed a hardware wallet that was, uh, that they used, they had a secure uh, chip in it, right? So, it had a secure element in it so that I could store uh, secrets in it. But I also wanted it to be open, open source, because... Um, 
I'm okay with closed source stuff. You know, my phone is closed source. I don't really care. It's like my computer. You know, honestly, like I find it hopeless, right, to to try to, because even if the phone is open source, the chips are still going to be closed source. It's just like an endless, uh, 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 it's endless pain there trying to make that stuff that's very complex work. But Mm. in in the place where you actually do, uh, key generation signatures and things like that for your actual Bitcoins, it has to be open source because otherwise you cannot trust the device. So if you buy a device that is not open source to generate and maintain your seed, you, you just don't know if they're doing what they claim they're doing. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, that it all. It's a lot easier to make something closed source, right? Because you also don't have to worry about security in a way as much. You do, but it's a lot harder for security researchers also to go poke through. So there is an advantage there. Now, um, you know, I just can't trust it. I don't know if you have a rainbow table. I don't know if you have an accidental rainbow table. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know if you accident. It's just... You know, it's just something I can't trust, especially for for Bitcoin wallets because they are so simple, right? Bitcoin harder wallets are fairly simple. Yeah. Um, but you know, you need a secure element too, and it's it's been a it's it's always a challenge to find a secure element that you are allowed by the manufacturer to make the source of it public, because all the IP for the secure element is often very closed down. Now and they don't want that stuff public because it also invites more people poking through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we did manage to, to, to find a, a chip and talk to the manufacturer and get that stuff done with the 508 from, from uh, microchip. So that's the story of code card. It's like, you know, it's a secure element with, with open source. Yeah, right. Um, actually, just one quick question, just for the listeners who aren't aware. Can you just help explain what is a rainbow table? Oh, it, it's just sort of like a, there's a couple. It's essentially you could pre-calculate what the device is going to calculate in terms of. So say, essentially, you know that the device is going to create a seed with those words. I'm actually I'm super oversimplifying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right here. But uh, so essentially, you as the manufacturer or the attacker, you know the device is going to create those numbers, right? If that's the entropy, if that's the seeds, if that's whatever it is. But you essentially pre know what's going to be generated. So you just use that table to to generate and steal the money or steal the. The, the keys or the password. Or exactly. Whatever. So I suppose then if the manufacturer, let's say they're really evil, right? And they use this, they they set up their hardware and they tell the customers, oh, hey guys, you're generating your own seed. But actually in reality, they've set it up such that they know the keys or they can regenerate all the private keys associated. And then they'll maybe put it out for six months, let all the customers store their Bitcoins on this product and then like do a kind of long con. And it could be it. 10 years, right? I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges with this stuff, right? I mean, people get cozy in their cold storage and they should, right? Like you don't want to be redoing that stuff all the time. So you need to trust the stuff that generates it for you. Uh, that's that's a very big deal. 
Yeah. And now let's talk through how kind of the the workflow for a cold card works. So let's say I've bought a cold card and I want to, you know, I want to go through that process of, you know, talk through how you set one up and then how you would like send the transaction by putting the SD card and so on. Right. So uh, we did it so that you can do, you can do USB or you can do the, the SD card, right? You don't have to use cold, cold. But for me, it was paramount to create a wallet, a hardware wallet that could operate without touching a computer ever, right? That to me was very important. So with cold card, you can just use a battery, like a USB battery, and, and uh, you, you know, you, you turn it on and you're going to create, it's going to walk you through creating the seed, right? And then it's going to make you back up the seed and all the good stuff, like all the other ones. And then it's going to ask you for a first pin. Uh, so, you you know, you, you take down, you know, it's up to six digits. So, you, you know, you, you make your six-digit pin. And then it's going to give you two random words that only the secure element of the device knows. So you write those down. And then it's going to ask you to create the secondary pin. And that's up to six digits as well. So why did we do that? So if if an uh, evil made attack right manages to you know go through deep lengths to you know replace the device with some weird stuff there or radio or something to try to steal your pin, right? Once you put your first half of the pin, if you don't recognize the words, it's like a two-factor authentication, right? Uh, oh, if you don't recognize the word, the second part of the pin. So if they they have the real device in hand, uh, they can't steal your money. Right. So it's it's one way of like an early warning system of if you were to try, it would then say, "Oh, these are the two words." And at that point, it's like the it's like the warrant canary. That's like the warning that now yeah. okay. But then, how would you would you then have to go find your backup seed, or how would you? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you know you're compromised, you know, you run to your backup seed and you re- and you would sweep those into some other device, take the funds out, recreate your whole setup, right? I mean, if you're compromised, you have to redo all your stuff. Um, so that's one way uh, that we did that. Another thing is the the first thing, actually, I should say is when you get an open diamond, do I have one here, though? It comes in a tamper-evident bag. So... Yeah. The same bag that banks use to put cash in, they're very hard to reseal or to do. You know, they're not perfect, but they're a big deal. And they have a serial number on the bag. And before each code card is bagged, the serial number of the bag is burnt into the secure element of the device. Oh, so wow. Yeah. yeah. So when you take it out of the bag and you turn it on, it's going to say, does the bag match the serial number? If it doesn't, destroy, rethink your life choices. Uh, <laughs> so, and then you do the pin stuff, right? Um, now it's going to ask you to, to do the seed. And then let's say you have a seed. Now, um, code card doesn't have an app. It doesn't do anything related to the internet. It doesn't need a computer. So what it does is, if you want, you will create for you uh, a Electrum skeleton wallet. So just the public part of the wallet, right? 
your right, public. like an XPUB, right? Exactly. And you'll save it to the SD card. And then you know you put your your uh, your code card back into your you know your your uh, uh, <laughs> underground, and then you go and you know you put your public stuff into Electrum, and boom, you're ready to to operate. Now let's say you want to send a transaction out, right? Um, you go on Electrum and and you you create your transaction and then you save it to the SD card. And then you take it to the to the cold card, you sign the transaction, and then you take it back and you broadcast it. Or, you know, if you don't care if this is your warm cold card, you plug it in the USB and it's gonna do like all the other hardware wallets that do it. You just make it sign connected to a computer. But you don't have to. And that to me is so important. Uh, you have to do, you want to do your hardware wallet signing in an environment where there is no cameras, no radio, you know, like there is no risk of, of being sort of captured or, or a compromise. Mm, yeah, right. And I suppose it's, it's interesting, right? If you look at the Glacier Protocol, one of the things even the Glacier Protocol does is they go to the level of saying you might want to look at having a fan to generate some noise to try and stop side channel attacks or trying to identify what's going on from the noise of the device. Exactly. I mean, and not having the computer close to your device is a big deal, right? So... You know, like this is one of the biggest problems with the, the other wallets is that they need to be plugged via USB to your computer, right? And, and you know, if your computer is compromised or you know they're using your computer to try to to listen to the to the radio on the device, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens, right? Yeah. So, you know, one of the best ways to do with it is just have nothing. <laughs> just yeah. grab the device, put your cell, your, your tin foil hat on, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> You know, go into the bank vault and, and do your signing there with just the battery, you know, and never be concerned about these problems. Yeah. Um, so so that's on the signing side. Uh, and then we created a few tricky, cool pin things for the the all the, the $5 range attacks. Um, so uh, there is a, you can have two wallets. Uh, so you can have a your wallet and then a decoy wallet. The device doesn't tell you which one is what. It's uh, depending which pin you put. It displays you something else. And uh, and my favorite is the brick me pin. So uh, if you you can set up this pin so that if you type this pin, the device is paperweight. Wow. Yeah. So it'll just totally nix the whole. Yeah, uh, because we have a secure element in it. Secure elements have this capability of writing ones. Right, so uh, unlike the one of the the competitions is just an MCU, right? So you know you can't trust an MCU to forget things either. So with the the secure element, you know if you if you say you know write this on top of that, it's over, <laughs> mm. and the device is away. Now you know keep on beating me, do what you want, but uh, there is no money. There's to no more bitcoins to steal, right? Yeah, and unless they know what kind of where your backup seed and that kind of thing. But obviously, you've got to think about this in advance and have backup plans, that kind of aspect as well. Uh, one other area I think is in not other area, more like just to make sure it's kind of clear for the listeners in terms of what's going on. So let's say you've set up with the code card and you've put the XPUB into your Electrum on your main 
desktop, right? And that's like your watching only wallet. And essentially what you would do when you want to craft that transaction is you're telling Electrum, hey, craft this transaction, but it is an unsigned transaction, right? And then that saves to that SD card and then you can put that in your cold card, that signs it, and then you put it back to the online computer to broadcast the transaction. Yeah, and uh, the person responsible for that standard now as Andrew Chow, he created BIP-174 and uh, PSBT files, right? Uh, partially signed Bitcoin uh, transactions. Uh, it, it is really cool because once the rest of the, the wallets sort of adopt this, now Bitcoin Core does in the latest release, uh, Electrum does, uh, I think Samurai Wallet does, uh, Green Address is going to have at some point soon. Uh, so once this standard has been adopted by most, the wallets won't even know which hardware wallet you have. Yeah, that's a powerful factor as well. You know, it's a nice thing because now an attacker doesn't know if the, you know, maybe you have a bucket of the competition wallets on your desk and, you know, they don't know which one has what. And, you know, it's very hard now to link the hardware wallet to the wallet. I find that one of the, the, the best features uh, of this, uh, the, the standard. Yeah, and it does remind me a little, people like to talk about this concept of using where they can general purpose hardware, right, rather than specific hardware. And I know Trace Mayer is big on this whole idea of using Purism Laptop and Glacier Protocol because he knows that other people can't surmise exactly what that Purism Laptop is being used for. Whereas if I know that you hold a, you know, this spe specific device that only holds Bitcoin, well, then I know you're probably holding Bitcoin with it. Yeah, I mean, I've been through the the, the you know the, the cycles of trying to think this through, and you know, honestly, like I just like modern operating systems and modern computers. They're just the level of complexity. Like it's just yeah. the sheer amount of lines of code that are in there, right? Like it's just it's literally impossible to know, right? Why with purpose device you know it, it, there really isn't you know like it's on github you can load the source yourself into the device you know and, and that's it like you know you lose the plausible deniability of the device um but you know getting a harder wallet these days i mean it's not that hard right i mean you, you know half airports now sell them it's it's yeah. not you know you can go buy cash somewhere and be done with it uh, and another nice thing too that you get with uh, a, a secure element <clears throat> is a true random a true random number generator a trng so that's it, a very powerful random number generator uh better than that only the dice yeah right yeah and, and it's it's just such a difficult area and there's so many different i guess if you're a newbie coming into this space you would hear this person telling you that and that other person telling you this and it's very difficult but i think ultimately you just kind of have to pick who you think is kind of trustworthy to kind of give you good advice if you're a newbie and, and just hope that they've kind of put you down that right pathway you know uh, being your own bank has a cost yeah Right. I, I mean, you know, nobody can take what's yours, but you can also screw yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Bitcoin really takes us back to the to the, you know, the early days of Federal Express. You know, it's like Chariot 
you know, the gold is there, shotgun and sort of like, you know, go across America now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, to some extent, it's like, I think this is a common thing many Bitcoiners say, is, you know, the first investment you have to make is education. You just have to go out and try and learn as much as you can to at least figure out who you think is solid and who you think is maybe not as solid. Yeah, I mean, and we've we've done a lot, right? I mean, like this this essentially ten years now of Bitcoin, right? I mean, like things have gotten a lot easier to use, uh, and, and we're still fairly early, right? I mean, you know, things will still get much better. I mean, it took thirty years to order groceries on the internet properly. Mm. <laughs> you know, like it, it's just it, it takes it takes time, and and if you want to be an early adopter, you know, you you get you get to be an early adopter. You get to, you know, register, you know, Microsoft.com and then sell to them. Um, or, you know, you get to buy Bitcoin early. Uh, and But you you have risks with that. And, and sort of like it's important for people to sort of gauge how much risk they're willing to do. And education really is the only, the only salvation. Yeah. Uh, look, excellent comments there. Uh, look, Rodolfo, I think we're getting to time. So maybe just tell the listeners where they can find you, where they can find, you know, CoinKite, where that what you know, what that why they should look into CoinKite and the you know, the cold card, open dime, etc. Yeah, so uh, I mean we, we make uh, devices, you know, because we wanna make devices. <laughs> um we, we wanna have some fun in Bitcoin and make different things. Uh, you can find uh, most of the stuff we make on coinkite.com, and then there is a cold card, uh, open dime, uh, the block clock now, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at NVK. And uh, I mean, that's it, really. Fantastic. Well, look, I think, um, yeah, it's been really great discussing with you. Um, listeners, make sure you uh, press subscribe and give me a thumbs up, share this stuff out. Um, but otherwise, Rodolfo, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed uh, discussing with you and hope to chat with you again soon. It was, uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Let me know what you guys thought of that. I have a contact page on my website, Stefan Levera, or otherwise come and find me on Twitter. My handle is at Stefan Levera. My direct messages are open, so you can message me. I pretty much respond to anyone, anyone reasonable. Um, so yeah, feel free to message me there. Also, just wanted to give a quick shout out and thank you to the people who left me a five-star rating and review recently. So I got some really nice reviews, some saying things like deep and fast dives on Bitcoin, great guests, learning about Bitcoin, Bitcoin through the lens of Austrian economics. Thank you to those of you who left me that review on the iTunes store. I really appreciate any support you guys can give me with that. Lastly, if you want to find the show notes for this site, they're on my website, stefanlevera.com. That's it from me. Thanks, guys. See you next time.